have much to give thanks for, much to cry out for. We know there are many in our midst or watching from elsewhere who are in need of mercy or hope for whatever reason in this hour, and we ask that you would meet them. Father, help us um, to walk in your way. Would you afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted? Beginning with me, in Jesus' name, amen. His name is Jimmy Dill, and he was abused in multiple ways as a child. And the way his life turned out, he became addicted to alcohol and then to drugs, and then he got caught up in the drug scene. And in a car ride home, in a drug deal that went bad, he shot a man. And that man survived the shooting, but was thereafter handicapped, but was released from the hospital. Jimmy Dill was arrested and held and charged with aggravated assault because the man survived. Nine months later, the man he shot died, at which point the state changed the charge to capital murder. Jimmy Dill had no money, and so he could not afford representation. And in the state in which this occurred, the state assigned to him an attorney. And in that state, attorneys for people in these situations would be compensated at a maximum level of $1,000. Which, in law, if you're a defender at that rate, your incentive to investigate deep was low. And sure enough, he got what he paid for. Before he went to trial, the state offered him a parole eligible life sentence. But it's been argued that the attorney that represented Jimmy Dill didn't explain that clearly and therefore that plea argument was passed over and he went to trial. During trial, the attorney offered no insight into Jimmy Dill's background and also left out another piece of evidence, namely that the caregiver of the man he had shot was negligent in their care such that that person was so badly dehydrated that it triggered his demise. The court ruled that Jimmy Dill was still liable for his death, and he was sentenced to be executed. This story is one of many stories in a book that I've shared with you before that you've probably heard of by a guy named Brian Stevenson. It's a book called Just Mercy. Thirty days before Jimmy Dill was to be executed, Brian Stevenson and his group of lawyers took up his case and saw all the mitigating evidence that might have prevented that execution from ever occurring. They marshaled the evidence, they made an appeal, they even sent that information all the way to the Supreme Court. Those motions were denied. And in 2009, Jimmy Dill was executed by lethal injection. I am telling you that very unfamiliar and sobering story because I want to rescue the more familiar story that we're going to listen at today from what you might think is irrelevance or just something that we say around Easter, namely the trial of Jesus. When it comes to the case before us about Jimmy Dill, as with all things regarding jurisprudence, it's complicated. There's no question about whether there was a crime committed. The question was, was the death penalty warranted? And it goes without saying that when you execute a death sentence, there's no do-overs. The question is, not whether there was a crime committed, but whether it was just. 
I'm not here to answer that question for us. I'm only here to raise it, but also to tell that story in parallel with the story about the trial of Jesus. Because I think that story has a relevance for our world and has a relevance even for this story. And I think we need to hear those two stories alongside one another. What we're going to consider is that trial, such as it was, and to consider it under three headings. One, what did Jesus endure? Two, what did what he endure secure us? Three, how was that all accomplished? What did he endure? What did that secure? And how is that to have been accomplished? We thought we would let two of our newest members read to us the sermon text this morning. I introduce to you the Sloan family. They're going to read to us our text from Mark chapter 14. I wonder if you might stand and give your attention to the reading of his word. Our central text today is found in Mark 14, 53 through 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we considered Peter and his denials. And what's happening while Peter is denying his Lord is what's happening here in the council room. To get a running start, Jesus has just shared a meal with his disciples. He has warned them about what's happening. He has sung a hymn. He has struggled in the garden at Gethsemane. He has been betrayed by a kiss from Judas. And he has been arrested and hauled in before the ruling council, for a trial. And I put that in scare quotes for a reason, because it's barely a trial, and I think Mark is including that because we're meant to notice what kind of trial this was. 
Usually, trials are out to find out what is true and have an outcome result from the evidence provided. And instead, it's pretty clear there was a predetermined outcome in mind, and now they were just trying to find the evidence that would support that, uh, that verdict. That's in one way that it's a joke. Secondly, the, the testimony that comes forward that they're able to solicit, what did you hear? They all conflict. There's no corroborating evidence. Everybody that came forward with a story, it just didn't line up. It didn't match. And if you are familiar with the Torah, as these who in the Jewish ruling council were, you know that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says, on capital punishment cases, there is no way you can condemn a person unless at least two or three witnesses agree. They didn't have two even. The third reason it is a joke is because the testimony often bore false witness. They put words in Jesus' mouth he did not say, or rather they misquoted him. They said, didn't he say, I will destroy the temple and again rebuild it in three days with those without hands? What Jesus really said in Mark chapter 13 was, this temple will be destroyed, not that he would do it. They're adding words to his claim and therefore bearing false witness against him. And again, if you know the Torah, what's the ninth commandment? You shall not bear False witness against your neighbor. Friends don't lie. Neighbors don't lie. Fellow Israelites don't lie. They don't bear false witness against him. This trial is a sham, and we're meant to see it as such. And if it weren't for what happened next, and we'll get to that in a moment, there is no case, there is no conviction. Brian Stevenson in his understanding of what happened to Jimmy Dill, would say, if you had put all the facts on the table, you would be hard-pressed to justify a death penalty for that man. Here in this moment, in Jesus' trial, truth is either obscured or omitted altogether. What happened here is that truth became a spectator and became banished from the room. And therefore, why Mark includes all of these details? I mean, again, we'll, we'll, we'll say this this week, we'll say it again next week. Why include the, the sordid post-mortem following Jesus' death? To account for why Jesus was executed, yes. But to make this first point, do you know what Jesus endured? Jesus endured an injustice. Plain and simple, and we're meant to see that. Why else mention the part about conflicting testimony? Why else mention the part about bearing false witness? Why else mention this sort of almost keystone cops approach to a trial in which there was a predetermined outcome in order to find evidence to support it? Why mention all of that unless we're not meant to see that Jesus endured an injustice? And as soon as we say that, we have to ask what therefore is in the background of this miscarriage of injustice, namely this. You and I know of God, and what we know of God, we most instinctually and naturally refer to him as God is love. But I think what we're meant to see at the same time that we know that God is love, as we see in Jesus, is that God is also just. 
justice is not an ancillary interest in his mind. That's why we see all of these details. The fumbling through a trial, whether Jesus would live or die, is at the same time asking the question, will justice live or die in the moment? And unless we see that in the background, we don't see anything behind it. Before Jesus was ever deprived of life, he was deprived of justice. I get a lot of help from something I read in a book by Fleming Rutledge recently to understand what Jesus is going through in that moment. She says this, God's son submitted to the utmost extremity of humiliation, entering into total solidarity with those who are without help. People who are without help can identify with the one who knew what it was like to have no help in the moment. And that's why this story and all of these details are therein. Justice was deprived of him. The argument that is made over and over in the case of Jimmy Dill, was he defended adequately? It's a question that remains even in those who study this case. I've put all of that information on a resource doc this week from, from controversial opinions and perspectives on that very question. You can read up on it if you wish. Jimmy Dill died alone, but he is not alone in meeting with injustice. Jesus knows what that feels like. He is competent to comment. And at the same time that we say that he knows about injustice, what underscores this moment is for us to realize that God is love, and because he is love, he is also just. And until we reckon with that, we don't reckon with the fullness of who God is. The trial does not end there. In fact, the moment is only heating up. We know what Jesus has endured, but now we want to ask the question, what has he secured as a consequence of what he endured? And that's where I'll turn to now. There is no one in that moment to defend Jesus. No one is speaking up for him. There is also no one who can provide irrefutable evidence against him. And that's what makes what happens next the most ironic thing in the moment. Jesus seals his own fate. The high priest, he's tired of the scuttlebutt. He's tired of hearing the conflicted evidence. He finally says, look, did you say that you would destroy the temple? And Jesus is silent. He doesn't represent himself. He says nothing. English common law allowed you the right not to bear witness so that you would not give yourself up to self-incrimination. That's the ideas enshrined in our Fifth Amendment. There was no Fifth Amendment in Jesus' day, and yet he still chooses not to respond. He could have denied the charge, but he doesn't. And that's when finally the high priest cuts to the chase and says, Look, are you him? Are you the Christ? The son of the blessed God? And here's where Jesus puts it all out there on the line in verse 62. I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Oh dear. 
this awful irony. Jesus is exalting himself in their eyes, but in doing so, you know what he's doing? He's incriminating himself in their eyes too. No one could come forward to give evidence in order to secure a conviction. Jesus' testimony in that one line just made a conviction a slam dunk. That language is pretty evocative, a little bit. What? What is he saying there? Let me, let me unpack for you what he's claiming. When he says, I am, to the question, are you the Christ? He's saying, the one that Israel has been waiting for, the one who is like a son of David, the one who is set apart and furnished to represent God as no one had or ever would, he's it. He's the one you've been waiting for. But all this language about seated and coming on the clouds of heaven, what, what is all that about? Jesus hasn't endured an injustice. That's what we learned in the first point. But all that language in verse 62 is out to make a second point, that Jesus endured an injustice. Why? To secure a final reckoning of all injustice. Those who stand in judgment over him, Jesus says, you will see me again. And when you see me again, I will be the one seated at the right hand of power. Meaning I will both have and share and execute the same authority as the Father. And how will he have and share and execute that authority? He will do so for the sake of just, for what is just, for what we would consider to be justice. That's his claim. That everything about the imperfections and the biases and the distortions and the loss of justice, he will bring those days to cease. He's come to an enduring injustice in order to secure a final end to all injustice. A day that has been appointed but which is still undisclosed that is the day when he will come and join and gather and bring an end to all injustice. And this is the irony. What Jesus has for the last 15 chapters done, chip chapters done most to conceal from those who were most interested in that question. He would tell them over and over again if they said, you're the Christ, the Son of God, he would say, shh, don't, nothing, don't say nothing. He's done everything to keep that under wraps. And now, to the very people he sought to keep that most under wraps from, he's saying it with his own lips. He is saying, I am the one that you've been waiting for. And I am the one who you will see again, who will come to bring justice and bring a final end to injustice. You and I, we need to grapple with that from a 21st century mindset for just a second because we know what happens next and I'll get to that in a moment from how they respond to that claim. Let me grapple with it in a very different way. Oh, I'm good. <laughs> I'm going to teach you two words, two Greek words, one of which you've kind of heard before. The other one, you'll probably never hear it ever again, and that's okay. You leave this room, you don't remember these, that's fine. Two words. Mr. Rogers is going to teach you two words from Greek. One is the word apotheosis. Say it with me. Apotheosis. The second word is apocalypsis. 
apocalypsis. Now, what's this first word, apotheosis? You know what it is if you've ever been to the Capitol in, the, in, in Washington. If you go into the Capitol and you look straight up, you will see a fresco done by a guy named Brumitty back in the 1880s, and you stare straight up, and it's right up there, and it's a bunch of heavenly-like figures, and there's lots of clouds there, but there at the, I guess you'd say the bottom of the fresco, if you want to, whatever the bottom is, who do you see there? You see in the inset image there, that looks like George Washington. And what's he doing? He's seated, and he's in the clouds, and he has this sort of mean on his face that looks like, I'm in charge here. The name of that fresco is called the Apotheosis of George Washington. You've seen me do this before. It's been a few years. But it's called the Apotheosis of George Washington. And apotheosis is simply means this. You are elevating a human to godlike status. And in that moment, George is looking pretty divine. That's what apotheosis means. Now, was George Washington divine? No. But for the respect and the things that people attribute to him, Brumidi wanted to show that respect by elevating him to almost like godlike status. That's what an apotheosis is. Second word, apocalypsis. That sounds familiar. If you ever saw Apocalypse Now, or if you ever saw, did you ever see uh, Mel Gibson's Apocalypto? Neither did I. In that, in that moment, sorry, in that moment, you're probably thinking of all sorts of words. It all, it, in your mind, apocalypsis sounds like apocalypse, which you think either means napalm or fire and brimstone. What it means at its most basic level is a revelation. That that which is hidden is now open. That which was once concealed has now been revealed. And that's why we call it the book of Revelation. The apocalypse. Why do I bring up these two Greek words to you? Because every single one of you in this room has to make a decision when it comes to Jesus. Did Mark and the early church commit an apotheosis by elevating a very human Jesus to godlike status just out of their appreciation for him? Or did Jesus do an apocalypsis where he revealed himself to be the divine one that nobody else saw coming. Everybody in this world has to decide. Did man lift up Jesus as if he were divine, but he really isn't? Or did Jesus in this moment reveal himself to be divine because he was? It's a decision that everybody has to make. It's a decision that this verse doesn't give you the freedom to opt out on. Did we raise him up? Did he show himself as he is? If it's the former, then whatever Jesus is promising about a final reckoning to injustice, that's a pipe dream. That's just wishful thinking. But if this was an apocalypsis where Jesus is revealing himself to be, then there might be the possibility that what he is promising could come true. Martin Luther King. You've heard this phrase. It's probably the one phrase that is most, he is most known for. It's this word. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. What I'm arguing here in this second point about Jesus securing a final end to injustice, I'm saying that Jesus has come to bend the arc. 
And as quickly as I say that, there are millions of people throughout history, if not many of us, even in this very room, who would like to think to themselves, if not say under their breath, yeah, right. Sure seems like a lot of injustice going on, even at this very hour. I'm going to show you a brief moment from, of all stories, the Count of Monte Cristo. If you read that in junior high or high school, you know the story of a man named Edmund, who is falsely accused of a crime he did not commit, falsely convicted of that crime, and then falsely sentenced for that crime. And now he has lost everything as a consequence of that false accusation. In this moment, which is a little bit intense, don't worry, it'll stop where it needs to, he is having to reckon with whether God is just and whether anybody else cares. God will give me justice. People are always trying to motivate themselves. Or they keep calendars. But soon they lose interest. Or they die. And There's a window. And all I'm left with is a rather unsightly wall, I'm afraid. So, I've conceived out another way to help our prisoners keep track of time. Every year, on the anniversary of their imprisonment, we hurt them. Usually just a simple beating, really. Although, on their first day here, in your case, today, I like to do something rather special. And if you're thinking just now, why me, oh God? The answer is, God has nothing to do with it. In fact, God is never in France this time of year. God has everything to do with it. He's everywhere. He sees everything. All right. Let's make a bargain, shall we? You ask God for help, and I'll stop the moment he shows up. It's not just a story. It's the reality for more people than we might ever want to know. Jesus has made a promise, and that promise falls hard on a lot of ears. And the question is, wow, we might simply be sympathetic for him for all that he endured, and wow, he might lift our spirits a little bit for how what he endured will secure something that we might all want, but give me a break, man. On what basis do any of us have any hope that that promise will come true? That's the thing i got to end with. What he endured so that he secures something, what, how will he accomplish that? What happens when Jesus finally says that in verse 62? The high priest, he shouts blasphemy. And he tears his garments. And the guards, you know what they do? They, they spit on him. They strike him. You know what they also do? The word there kind of gets lost in the English translation. They, they hit him with an open hand. They slap him. And it's hard for us to really kind of fathom for like what's motivating that. And I, I do not mean to trivialize what we're considering here, but the closest thing to yours and my world that might approximate that is this. The slap heard around the world. The Greek word there is the word rapisma. 
in that moment, and I, I watch as I avoid the landmines here, right? In that moment, ostensibly, his wife had been humiliated, and he saw fit to defend her honor. The reason the high priest tears his robes and the guards break out and strike, spit, and slap Jesus is because they think the honor of God has been humiliated. They believe his holiness has been offended and they respond in that way. And what does Jesus do once they have said, see, we have enough. This man stands condemned. Let him be taken to Pilate to be executed. What does Jesus do? Nothing. He does not defend himself. He does not stay their hand. He does not say, you better not do that. He lets it all happen. Why? Jesus endured an injustice to bring a final end to all injustice by first accomplishing a just mercy. That's the third thing I think this text is teaching us. What he endures so that he might secure that, the only hope that we might believe that it might be true is because he first accomplished a just mercy. What do I mean? I have two new friends. They're in their 70s. They like coffee at this shop in West Asheville. And on Fridays, one day I butt myself into their conversation because they were talking about big, deep, philosophical things. And I go, oh, I want to get to know you two. And they invited me in, and now I'm part of their club. One of them, his name is, I'll call him Victor. He's from Romania. He sings opera. The other man, we'll call him Peter, is a retired victim's advocate in the judicial system in Florida. And after a while of us talking about all sorts of things, he shared a story, including just on Friday, he shared with me about a death penalty case that he'd been a part of. He is there to advocate for victims of crimes, including death penalty cases. And in that case, the woman that he was advocating for, her son had been killed by another man. He was there to support her. But before the sentencing happened, the judge allowed a statement from the defendant's mother, allowed her and her family to speak on behalf of the defendant, who was likely to be executed for his crime. And the mother of the of the victim whom this friend Peter was advocating for, he watched her and she heard that woman's testimony. And when she was done, she leaned over to Peter and said, I want to talk to that mother. That mother's boy took my son, but now the state is about to take her son and I need to talk to her. And I asked Peter in that moment, dude, how does, how does justice and mercy fit together in that moment? And he says, exactly. How does justice that God purports to be the advocate for, but mercy at the same time, he also purports to be the advocate for, how do those two things sit together, fit together? I'll tell you. In Romans 3.25, you hear Paul explain the gospel in these terms. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Big words, 
Here's the gospel, friends. God is just. God does not let sin go unpunished. God satisfies his justice by punishing sin, and that punishment fell upon his son. He was just. He satisfied the requirements of holiness and justice by allowing that to befall upon his son. Justice was satisfied, but at the same time he was satisfying mercy because all those who have faith in Jesus, they receive God's mercy. They are justified by God, declared righteous in his sight such that they are now adopted as his sons and daughters by faith in what Jesus had done, not by anything that we have done, nothing by anything impressive in us or from us, but because what is impressive in Jesus. That's the gospel. And in the gospel, Jesus, in the Lord, satisfies both what is just and merciful in the same. That, my friends is how God can thread that needle somehow. And it also explains this, how it is even possible to believe that there might be a final reckoning of injustice. Because after this trial, and after that execution, there was this little thing called the resurrection. And if that is true, not only is forgiveness real, but the possibility of a final reckoning of justice is also very possible If there is no resurrection, there is no case for any of it. But if there is, then you are not a fool to hope in such. This is the call. This is his promise. And because he accomplished that just mercy first, it's not in vain to think of a final reckoning of injustice. So where does this go? Let's let's land the plane here. What's the takeaway? One, gratitude and praise. To, to listen to Jimmy Dill's story, its complexity notwithstanding, you at least have to wince. You at least have to wonder. And we should. In Jesus' case, his trial, you do have to wince, but you have to do more than wince because what Jesus was doing was not just, he was not just the unfortunate Um, victim of a set of consequences outside of his control. What he did was for you. There was purpose and reason behind it. You ever blown it and somebody else took the fall for you in some sort of small way? I mean, you just, I mean, did you step in it? Whatever it might have been. And then somebody else said, I'll take the fall. Do you know how that changed the way you felt for them? Imagine that what was done there in miniature for you and whatever that circumstance was writ large and who what Jesus has done for us on that. Gratitude fits. You know what also fits? Hope. Jesus confirms to us, as we've said before, his solidarity with those who have been deprived of injustice. The most recent Batman film, you think it's all about a superhero movie. You know what? It's actually about revenge and about its inadequacy. Selena's father had abused her. She has an opportunity to take revenge upon him. She says, he has to pay. And Batman intervenes and he says, you don't have to pay with him. You've paid enough already. 
In other words, whatever satisfaction you might get from taking revenge on him, it will cost you at the same time you think it's paying you back. John Calvin, of all people, said of this passage, it should be of great benefit to us that if Jesus sits in the heavens and will one day come and reckon an end to all injustice, then this is what is true. The rage of wicked men will not be answered without consequence. And that instills hope and perhaps a little bit of restraint against revenge. But lest you think that this whole moment is about to encourage you to be passive when it comes to the topic of injustice. And I'll say here at the very end, I know the word just and justice is in the eye of the beholder. If you don't define it, it's like a fire hose that's on but loose. It is a danger. It serves and hurts all sorts of people if you use the word justice casually and without definition. But let me just say this. I think what this text is inviting us to say is that insofar as it depends on you, in whatever context or place you find yourself in, and in whatever influence that you might have, you must know this, that to see to just treatment of another as God defines what is just, that is as much an act of love as anything else you might do. You might never ever hear another pastor say that if some of you who are young are wondering what to do with your life, you might even consider becoming an attorney. Did I just say that? In every domain, in every walk of life, there are opportunities to ensure that people are treated justly. And that is not separate from love. This is what he has for us. This is what he suffered. This is what we face. You are invited to a lifelong challenge to figure out how justice and mercy go together in the way that Jesus has shown us in himself. Let's pray. Whatever is true and lovely and praiseworthy and admirable and holy, would you help us to think on those things? And as we think on them, that our affections for them would grow. And with those affections, the courage to bear them out not to prove anything to you, not to compensate for what you've done, not to think that we should somehow pay you back and therefore feel ourselves never indebted to you again, but simply because you give us the courage to walk in that way. Lord Jesus, help us to see you as you are and for what you have done and to see ourselves and one another in the right light. In Jesus' name, amen.